Welcome to the Lonely Pastors Podcast with Brother Michael Battenfield and Brother Derek Bremer. Just two small church pastors seeking to glorify God, to grow in grace, and to flesh out doctrine, theology, and issues facing the church today. Thank you for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Lonely Pastors Podcast. This is Brother Michael Battenfield. And this is Brother Derek Primer. We're just two small church pastors seeking to just flesh out theology and doctrine and its application to the the local church. Uh, This morning, we are going to be discussing something that uh, we kind of came to the title of mission drift. Uh, In military campaigns, personnel are sent on missions sometimes with secondary missions to be included. Unfortunately, something can develop that expands beyond that, quote, mission uh, to other actions that may or may not apply to the original mission and can eventually lead to a compromise of that mission. And we see this theme played out in war movies. We see it played out in all sorts of things when we watch it on the big screen. The church itself was given a twofold mission. The first and most important mission of all believers is to what? Glorify God. God. And to that end, we have a prime directive. We find that in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All power is given unto me. And what was the commission? To go into all the world and make disciples. In fact, uh, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of age. If you're a preacher, you've probably preached this more than once, uh, no matter how long you've been a preacher. Uh, and if you've been doing it a long time, you may have preached it more than any other sermon out there. It seems simple enough, yet when you compare early Christianity, thinking of the first century, obviously, and the evolution, so to speak, of church ministry, we find that what often is labeled as church today, and by extension church planting, may bear very little resemblance to what we find in Scripture. And we want to put a pause on right there, because we think we owe it to our listener to just explain why we've taken such a long gap since our last one. It's actually been totally unintentional. Uh, Life has gotten in the way. Brother Derek is not only a full-time pastor and has a young family uh, to care for, but he's also in seminary, and he's he's bitten off some big chunks of late, and he's had a lot of work and reading to do. And so, obviously, we don't want to compromise or mission drift off of those uh, prime directives in his life, but... I myself have also been quite busy, uh, not only with regular ministry, but also in preparations for the Baptist Missionary Association of Arkansas's annual meeting, which was last week. I'm glad to uh, have that off my back and no longer be uh, the president. But again, there's been lots of things going on. At the same time, Derek and I both have this uh, proclivity to pay attention to what's going on, whether it be in the bigger picture of, quote, Christianity uh, all around the world to much more local issues, and even within our own work, our own association of churches. 
Uh, and there's been a common thread that actually I wasn't even aware of that we had had uh, a similar concern with this idea of mission evolution, mission drift, uh, whether it be the local church's ministry, church planting ministries. Uh, and we see a lot of things unfolding that seem to parallel and bounce back to Actually, things we've discussed in other episodes. It almost seems like we're one-hit wonder. <laughs> Minus the wonder. <laughs> but <laughs> in our previous discussions, the things that we've drawn from and have jumped off of as our discussion points, they all come back to, to one central area. And that's that these are not airhead ideas. <laughs> So when we talk about theology, well, that's not an abstract thing that's up in the air that we're wrestling with, but it's a practical thing that applies to how the church works. It's a practical thing that applies to the way that churches work together. It's a practical thing that applies to the way that we do what God wants us to do, the way that we obey Him, and, and all those, those various other things. One of the things that keeps coming back to my mind is, and, and I've visited with a lot of church planners, both within our own work and, and other denominations slash entities that, that plant church, even including some independent ministry type folks that plant churches. And the one thing that keeps coming back around is there is, I think, in some circles, a very positive uh, shift in their thinking. And that is to recognize that there is a new paradigm, so to speak, uh, that really is not new. Quite the contrary, it's 2,000 years old. They are actually finally opening the scriptures, <gasps> opening the scriptures and going, okay, maybe it's time we got back to looking at what Jesus said. What did Jesus practice? What did the apostle Paul practice? What did Peter practice? What did all these others uh, recorded in the, in the first century, what did they do to plant churches? And how does that compare to what we have made church planting and church ministry into. Uh, And then we have also the realities. We live in a world today that is ever increasingly hostile towards Christianity. And when I say that, obviously, there's wildly popular, quote, Christians out there. But are they really Christian? Are they really uh, portraying the Word of God? In fact, we've had several conversations just today before we started recording about some folks that that may hold personal values that are orthodox and yet aren't necessarily particularly uh, serious about defending those uh, beliefs. Um, You know, I have actually come to, uh, in preaching in Romans, have really come to recognize that I kind of wonder if they're ashamed of the gospel. But that's another story. Uh, I don't want to point fingers or or, or bring anybody's names. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because, again, I don't know their heart. But there should be a grave concern and people won't stand on biblical doctrines. And I'm not talking about the things that there's room for wiggle. There's things that Brother Derek and I could sit here long enough and discuss, and we'd find things that we don't, we're not in lockstep over. That's okay. But I'm talking about very core, unshakable, black and white biblical doctrines. And that gets back to, that's another reflection of what I would call mission drift uh, and pragmatism. How many churches and other organizations have compromised core biblical values for expediency? Right. Uh, it gets so easy to say, well, for example, uh, I've been, you know, I think I've even shared some of them uh, via email with Brother Derek, uh, churches that uh, maybe at one time were bastions of biblical truth. 
that now ordain and put practicing homosexuals in positions of leadership. Um, that's problematic. It's pragmatic, and it's also mission drift. They're forgetting what they're doing and who they're serving. Maybe we should back up Uh-oh. just a step and define some of these terms. So, I, pragmatism. We've discussed. We had a whole episode uh, that was dedicated to discussing pragmatism, the problem of it. I, I recently found a definition. It's not a true definition, but something that I think is very helpful. Pragmatism comes down to the questions that we ask. Traditionally, Baptists have been referred to as the people of the book because we go back to the Bible and we say that we want to do what the Bible says. Our doctrinal statement says the Bible is the soul of... What's the actual terminology? The soul, I've got a copy of it right there in front of you. Uh, the soul measure or the soul... Uh, he's looking it up now. The scriptures are God's inerrant revelation, complete in Old and New Testaments, written by divinely inspired men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Those men wrote not in words, but of human wisdom, in words taught by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures provide the standard for the believer's faith and practice, reveal the principles by which God will judge all, and express the true basis of Christian fellowship. They are the sole measure for Christian life and faith. And yet, in our own history, we have oftentimes resorted to man-centric things that were not biblical in their origins. And it's, again... And we have to be compassionate when discussing... Well, at least gracious when discussing this, because I am guilty of this in different degrees... Absolutely. ...and different times of my life, because it, it happens without even noticing it. Pragmatism That's why comes, we use the word drift. That's right, drift. Pragmatism comes down to asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking, what does the Bible say, we ask... What works? There's a lot of things that work in ministry. Uh, work, of course, goes back to the episode on measuring ministry success. Um, you know, when you're asking the wrong questions, when you're measuring by the wrong standards. But again, here we are with this topic of ministry drift or mission drift. What do we mean by that? What What would be a really glaring that anybody could go... Well, I see that. I see what you mean by drifting away from ministry or from mission. What would be a glaring example of that? Oh, that is a I dangerous spot, question. Didn't I? Um, Am I asking the right or the wrong questions? I think that's the right question. What is an example of mission drift? Well, how about this? I, I can think of okay, one. Go ahead. Um, I recently heard of this. It's in an organization that I'm I'm not a part of, so I won't mention them. But this organization has a church plant that they are supporting. They have been supporting this church plant for seven years. It is the only missional work that they are currently involved in. And this church plant has a hundred plus people attending it regularly on Sunday, with two pastors mm. that are uh, overseeing this church. I've heard about this. Oh, and they're still being paid for by this group of churches. That by this particular um, group. organization. Right. I think maybe we've missed the mark. At what point is this mission a local autonomous new body uh, called out body of believers? Whenever they decide they want to get off of missional support, right? Right. 
you know, that's more than I'm averaging in a weekly attendance. How about you? That's significantly more than I'm averaging. And so it makes you kind of stop and scratch your head and go, what are we planting or what is that group planting in that case? What are they actually hoping to do? Are they are they hoping that they'll have a three three campus, five thousand in attendance before they decide to pull the plug? Uh, seven years. Seven years. But let's be honest, that's kind of the time window of our own uh, organization's church planting, especially at state level. Well, let's go back, um, as you were discussing, back to what the Bible says. What was the longest, um, and I'll make reference real fast for our listeners, if you have never read Roland Allen's um, the title, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, if you have never read that book, it was, it was published in the early uh, 20th century, and there are free copies available online, and I would encourage you to... It's a Make short book. feel old. I think it was published in 1962. 62. That's what it says in your notes. <laughs> okay, it was published in... Well, no, it was printed by Erdman's oh, okay, in 1962. Gotcha. It was reprinted. That was a reprint. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, sir. It was. It's older than that. Now you're calling me sir. <laughs> My point is, it's available online. It's a short book. It's It's simply written. It's approachable. I would encourage people to read it and ask this question. What was the longest church plant that the Apostle Paul was a part of? It would be the church in Ephesus. That makes sense. And how long was he there? Three years. That's what I thought. Three years mm-hmm. compared to modern methods. That but are, he was an apostle. He could speak in tongues. He could lay hands on and, and chase out demons. Well, it, <laughs> it comes back to measuring success, I think. What are we trying to do whenever we plant a church? Do, do we have to have a, a certain amount of curmudgeons in the church before it's officially uh, I think there's a, I think there is a quota. I also believe you have to have at least a 10,000-square-foot facility built, right, with a loan. I don't think that there was any facility in the church in Thessalonica or any facility in the church in Corinth because people were meeting Were in any homes. of the churches described in the New Testament, did any of them describe a facility? They say, the church in your home. Yeah, the church meeting in Aquila or with they, Priscilla. Or they met together at the synagogue. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that made the Jews there so happy and thrilled. But <laughs> but the point is that, you know, and I was telling you earlier that I've been visiting with a, a church planner from another organization in our area that uh, we had a very long discussion Tuesday about that and about the whole, you know, our own agency is much like many other Baptists in our tradition is you find a guy who's willing, who's called, quote, quote, and you put a parachute on his back and you airdrop him somewhere with a promise of a loan to build a building and you tell him, okay, plant us a church, build you a building and organize and you've got this this time window to work with. Okay, but that's worked for the past 50 years. Are you anti-building? Absolutely. No, I'm not anti-building at all, no. But we've also got to understand the building is for our convenience. It's for our purposes. It's to simplify. It's to help with organization. 
But at the same time, we've got to understand that nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to build a church building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, I'm not against it at all. You and I both pastor churches with a church building. Uh, and that's that's not the point, though. The point is when it becomes all about measuring success by facilities, measuring success by all the man-made structures, and again, we start chasing after the wrong things, we're asking the wrong questions, and we're pursuing wrong goals. Even if you're altruistic in your mindset, even if you think that you're doing the Lord's will, you know, the theme of our meeting last week, our state meeting last week, that uh, that the Lord impressed on my heart 10 months ago was what? Remembering, Remembering first love. your first love, the Christ of the gospel. You know, and it bounced off of Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, Romans, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and, the, and Jesus' dictated letter uh, through John to the church at Ephesus. There's that Ephesus again. Right. And the idea of, man, he had uh, commendations after commendations. It's the things that we would love to say that we can check the boxes of. You've been faithful. You hated evil. You hated the work of the Nicolaitans. You you know, all these wonderful, wonderful things that I I consider to be good markers of a good church. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he torpedoes the entirety of it. But I have this against you. I have this against you. You have left your first love. And I did some 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 deeper than I had done in the past study on that. What does that really mean? It literally is saying that they, they had put aside their prime reason for doing. Right. They had, you know, that's why we say forgotten. The idea is... They were doing all the good stuff in the world. They were chasing after every possible avenue of doing ministry, and they forgot the who and why they were doing it to begin with. But Michael, I love conversations like this because I'm passionate about it. I am passionate about doing things God's way because I think that's we're going to be most successful when we do things God's way. And we're going to have to give an account. I'm hesitant about these conversations sometimes because they have the potential of coming across as divisive. And the fact of the matter is, I have never planted a church. To be honest, not that I haven't been being honest before. (laughs) (laughs) There's an inside joke to that. We'll just leave laying right there. But to level with you. There you go. I'm not sure that I have the personality that would be suitable for church planning and i'm not saying god can't work work through me but that's something that does he calls he also yeah anyway it is something that will have to be overcome if i was ever in that position right so with that said i have none of this experience the point of good theology which what this ultimately comes down to is that we are working together cooperating together because you and I, I would I would classify both of us as nerdy when it, when it comes to what the Bible says. I'm not says. offended by that term. <laughs> I identify myself to my church as a theology nerd. Right. And I don't know everything. There's lots more wise people than me and more nerdy people than me. But I get passionate about theology. I get passionate about how all that and the Word of God comes together in our practice and our doing. So in that sense, we are both nerds in that same camp. 
and being nerdy is not it's not the it's not the end of the road and it's not actually what everyone needs to be i actually do not need everybody in my church or everybody in the world to be as nerdy as i am about what god says i actually need someone who's very practical who can help me to make sure that uh, that I am grounded, that I'm being reasonable. At the same time, they need me to make sure that when they're asking practical questions, that we're doing it the way God says. Theology is something that I wish more people were passionate about because you can't be a practical Christian without practical theology. But... Again, how do we bring this back together? Like you said, you need somebody that's more practical to help keep you using theology. If we're just doing theology for the sake of doing theology, it's kind of like all the truth in the world without love. It's just right. a, it's just a clanging symbol. We drive people away with it. We drive people, you know, we, we burn people on it. So we've got to make theology practical, and that gets back to, well, what is our main objective what is our purpose as a local church or as a church planting entity what is our direction what is our purpose why do we do what we do well number one because god said to that's pretty important right right okay if god told us to do something then we should go do it great when the lord warned joseph to flee to egypt because herod was going to try to kill the child what did Joseph do? He got He established up. an agency and a committee. And, <laughs> no, what did he do? That very night, he gathered his, his wife and his child, and they fled to Egypt. They did it. And God had told him, I will tell you when to come back. When right. the one that wants to kill your child is dead, you can come back, and I will let you know when to come back. And that's what he did. He humbly and obediently followed the Lord. So... Passion number one, in our prime directive, in our main mission, in making disciples and planting churches that are church planting churches, and on and on and on, get a passion for it. But remember, God gives us not only the mission, but he gives us the mission plan as well. And it's not just a pat. it's... It's a humility that appreciates the differences in the kingdom of God. Some are nerds, some are practical, some are zealous, some are emotional. When we read in Scripture that God has called people together from all backgrounds to create His church, think Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11, Ephesians 2.13-17, we rightly marvel at the implications for a local assembly. Yes. We've got people from all backgrounds. In a close-knit community like uh, the communities that we live in, uh, Greenwood's a very small community. They're very close-knit. There appears to be you know, small, a small amount of diversity present. In fact, U.S. Census reports reflect a geographical anomaly. How, then, can there be diversity within the local church? The church should be an accurate representation of the larger population as a whole. There is diversity in what drives us and what motivates each individual, and acknowledging this diversity safeguards each person from becoming self-sufficient. Airheads, like me, need someone practical protecting them from a pursuit of God that forsakes the heart or character of the man. Emotionally fueled persons depend on rational friends to defend their faith from 
quote-unquote new revelations, heresies, and things of the like. Zealots rely on folks who demonstrate and model patience and compassion. Pragmatists are protected by nerds that challenge their faith. When we say the word theology, it's common for us to recognize the suffix at the end, ology, and to equate it with the phrase study of. While that's not wrong, uh, this kind of understanding, I do believe, is inaccurate. More accurately, it is saying something about, and when we say something about God, i.e. practice theology, we depend on community engagement. Without each other, we are sure to err due to self-sufficiency. What concerns me in a conversation like this, while I have no experience in some of these things, is the natural tendency of man is to become more confident and arrogant in what we believe. The longer people serve in positions, the longer that people grow comfortable in the way that they've always done it, the longer traditions set in, the less likely they are to accept the rebuke from a biblical perspective. And here's the thing. I could be biblically, this isn't the case, I'm sure, if you really got down to it, but in theory, I could become, if I study enough, if I pray enough, I could become biblically 100% accurate. That's a lofty goal. The problem is, I can be totally accurate and be a miserable failure as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, as a leader. Why? Because at no, no point does that then bring it back around to practical application. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see this unfold today. Some of, some of our listeners may be familiar with this n- relatively new term called deconstruction. Right. Christian deconstruction that, that, that comes under several labels, unchurched, dechurched, um, ex-Christian, uh, and so on. We see this going on in the, in the pews. We see this going on in popular Christian music. We see it even among those who have been in ministry or families of ministry. And I can't help but think a lot of that comes from we become so stuck on these traditions and uh, systems that we legal we turn it into a legalistic thing, which would be a form of mission drift that Paul addressed many times. Uh, that we wind up squishing and we fail to exercise love. We fail to exercise the practical application. Again, if I'm 100% theologically, biblically correct and yet cannot apply that in a meaningful way to the person in the pew and all I wind up becoming is a clanging cymbal and a loud drum in their ears, it's no wonder people deconstruct. They get full of self-pride in that, hey, I don't think you're right because my feelings are much louder than your legalism. And I know what the Bible says, but we've had this conversation before. But it comes down to we become so, hey, I am all about defending the faith, defending theology, defending the truth. But here's the problem. When we take that and we get off of the prime directive of making disciples and teaching, what's the best way to teach, Derek? When I say this, I was teach, comma, Derek. 
the best teachers in you, the, the teachers you have learned the most from in life, mm. what avenues were most effective to reach Derek with knowledge and understanding? I might not be the person to ask because I'm an odd duck, I think. That's okay because that is an example of where I'm going. The best way to teach me, mm-hmm. I'm in the minority, Okay, is to recommend books to me. Okay. And then to talk about those books with me. The latter part of that's really the, the big thing. You enjoy reading. I enjoy reading. That's fine. And I absorb stuff. But it really comes to life when you're able to sit down and talk about it, discuss it, right? Right, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think I, I'm trying how, not to. How many, really t- how many times have you read a book and you've, you've absorbed just base knowledge? But then when you actually are able to get in an environment to discuss it, suddenly you're like, okay, now this connects here, this is here, okay, and now this is all making so much more sense. And plus you get the input from others that have read it, and suddenly it gets fleshed out. Well, guess what? Is that not what was the most common teaching method in the first century? Right. Paul would send a letter to a church, and they would send it to one man to read it and then tell him what it said? No. They would read it aloud together in a gathering, and then they would sit around and discuss it. Because, hey, I've been in a teaching situation in church before where I've sat down and I've read a text, and we've started discussing it, and someone out of complete left field, I thought at the time, inserts an idea. And I just sit there like, what is that, a a cow looks at a new fence post? (laughs) Because... I'd never heard that. I'd never thought it. And that actually makes all the sense in the world in the context we're dealing with. That's why we discuss. That's why we have this conversation. Now, how does this play back into our mission drift? Well, one way that mission tends to drift in churches and in church planting is when one person thinks they've got all the avenues and all the all the techniques, all the methodologies, all the knowledge, all the wisdom. And so, therefore, this is how it's going to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I've talked to several of them that have shared with me some of their church planting changes over the years, and how it's interesting that they are starting to really see. Now, I can't speak for the commission outside of what they've publicized and what I've heard, but one of the things that they're seeing is the old church church planting model that we talked about earlier, the prayer sheet method. Yeah. That that they in our own association of churches have that's what I, that's been our tradition and now they're seeing the value of sending a man into a community and he builds relationships and he ministers out of his home and then he shares that and then he when he finally gets one two three guys that are more faithful begins to pour into them and the church that comes out of that doesn't look like First Baptist Church on the street corner or Denver Street Baptist Church on their corner or whatever. These churches all look unique, and that brings us around. Have you ever wished you had a time machine? Rhetorical question. I think we oh, all yeah. wish we had a time machine, okay? But one thing that I wish I could get in a time machine and do is to go back to the first century, and I guess we need to call Dr. Who and have him bring his TARDIS over here because then we could jump around, right? <laughs> they could By be entertaining. Way, yes. Did you see David Tennant's coming back to Doctor Who? Yes. I'm very excited. Me too. My favorite doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
trying to derail me. Uh, but <laughs> let's imagine the time machine drops you in the town of Ephesus since you brought that up. And you're there just a couple years after Paul has done his church planning work there. And you go meet with them and watch how they worship. Watch how they operate. Look at the, the group of people that are gathered together and what that looks like. How they do church. All right? Now, jump back in your time machine and jump over to Thessalonica. Same thing. Then go to Colossae. Mm-hmm. And go to Wouldn't it be cool to see Jerusalem and see how the church was functioning in Jerusalem at that time? And you know what I think you'd find? There'd only be one relative commonality among every one of those churches. What they're teaching. Right. I think their practices would have had some variance, which kind of brings us around to yet another area of this mission drift. I'm a musician. I love music. Mm -hmm. We've seen in Christian music, quote, drift. We have. We have seen, you know, it's one thing when you have a group that has generally solid music, and then you find out that one of the group members leaves leaves and declares themselves not Christian. Or the entire group decides to fall in and support some unbiblical concept. And then you start listening to the music and you hear stuff proclaimed, like, uh, I claim the power to, and... And you just go down all these unbiblical things. And where does that come from? Pragmatism, obviously, because we're trying to to bring in worldly concepts. But it's a reflection of what the church has become. It's a reflection of, hey, we are chasing after something. Hey, I chase after souls. I chase after making disciples. But when we become the world for the sake of... That's not what Paul meant when he said, I become all things to all men whereby some might be saved. But I do believe Paul would Paul would probably Alright, this is gonna be funny. Not intentionally. RC Sproul has been made into the most amazing little clip. What's wrong with you people? Right, I love that clip. Can you not imagine the Apostle Paul if he could come here today? And probably even to your church and my church, and there would be parts that the Apostle Paul would go, "What's wrong with you people? I don't recognize this, and it's not because of where you live. It's because where in the world did you get this?" Or even just going back to yeah, as you open the open the conversation, quoting from Revelation chapter two, yeah, Jesus having someone send a letter yes. to the church and yes. taking the lid off of it and exposing not just what's going on, well, but what's in the heart. And he did that with all the seven churches. Right. Um, you know, we all would like to aspire to be a church at, Phil, uh, at, Phil, at Philadelphia, right? Mostly. Okay. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure we all want to be the church in Philadelphia, even. Considering would you some not, of the things okay. that they were going would through. Would we want to have their... Well, yeah, you're right. But I'm talking about the, the, the commendation from the Lord. Certainly. Um, and yet, if we're in honesty, I remember the first time I ever heard somebody teach on the seven churches of Revelation. Of course, they took the both historic and futurist perspective of it, but never did they mention that most churches today have elements of all seven churches. Right. 
And that gets back to why? Because we have allowed drift to come in. One of the ways that I think I personally have sometimes allowed drift to come in in my, on my mission, I have allowed myself to become lukewarm at times. Hey, you get into a lukewarm pool, it gets real easy to just kind of relax and kick back, doesn't it? As long as you don't stand up and the air doesn't touch you. And Especially you when it's 48 degrees outside. Yeah, you bet. Which is um, one of the reasons why I, I think churches need to get back to revival services and things like that. Because when you stand up and the air hits you after sitting in a lukewarm pool. It's shocking. It is shocking. And and here's the other side of that. If we're going to talk about something like revival services, which, again, that's not found in the Bible. But you get somebody come in who is biblically, theologically, doctrinally sound to come in and preach the cold, hard truth of the gospel and to preach on the very things that the local pastor oftentimes doesn't feel like they are free to be totally to put it all out there. Or that they don't feel secure. I mean, the the reality is, in ministry, it requires transparency. It, it requires... I don't think people realize what their pastors do for them. And, and I'm not talking about there are pastors that are better than I am, that go and visit every single church member every single week. They're at every football game. You know, they've got one blue eye, one green eye. They're bald on top, but they still have hair on the side. That way you can see that there's wisdom, but they're also handsome and easy to look at. Right, and they've got just enough gray hair to qualify as having the hoary hair of the Bible without looking like an old man, old man past his prime. I'm not talking about... He mows about- the grass, he washes, cleans the toilets... <laughs> Mops the floors, vacuums the carpet, turns the heat on in the morning, turns the air on. Yeah, okay. I'm not talking just about the ideal perfect pastor. I'm talking... With three doctoral degrees. Sorry, you go ahead. But not too many so that they're practical at the same time. They probably play major league ball or, you know... I'm not, I'm not just talking about him. I'm, I'm talking about I don't think your average church member realizes what their pastor does for them. Exposing their heart every single week. I mean, it's easy to say, oh yeah, my pastor, my pastor really loves the Bible. He really loves Bible study, but sometimes he loses me. Well, okay, you're, I'm sure that your pastor wants to, uh, wants to do better. He wants to be a better teacher. But do you know how excited this guy is to see spiritual growth in a person? Do you know how long your pastor talks about the text message that he receives Sunday after church that says, thank you, pastor? How many times he mentions it to his friends? How many times he mentions it to his wife? I I just, I think people don't realize this. And, And the consequence of not realizing this is that it allows them to become callous to what's going on in their church and the person that they are supposed to be allowing to shepherd them they are ignoring and so we're just looking at what works and our mission and sometimes a distraction or a drift comes when a congregation is not receptive when a congregation doesn't appreciate 
that the pastor is trying desperately to help them to do what in Scripture, to help the people grow in their fear and admonition of the Lord, to help them grow in spiritual maturity, to help them transition and be weaned from the sincere milk to the meat of the Word, uh, and to see, like you said, that spiritual growth. You know, I rejoice just as there's rejoicing in heaven every time a soul comes to repentance. But we all know that in most church settings, those experiences are relatively few and far between. Mm-hmm. But we get the opportunity week after week to stand before people, whether it's from the pulpit or behind a table and teaching or whatever. We get to stand up and open up Scripture and pour into people. People don't always grasp that, what that means. They think, well, he just has to study a little bit and come up with a clever speech and give it on Sunday morning. If that's all I was doing, this would be the easiest, quote, job I've ever had. But that's not the mission. That's it's not also the mission not of what, the pastor. Also, and yet that is what many have made it out to be. Mm-hmm. My mission as a pastor is to pour myself out into the people God has put into my life in such a way that they become what God has for them to become. Uh, you know, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that, was it that, wasn't it? Yes, that uh, our point is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. How do we do that? The way Jesus did it. Or how did Jesus do it? He spent three years, day and night, with a group of losers. Yeah. From all backgrounds of life. Guys that everywhere from tax collectors to guys that did nothing but try to catch fish and, and stank. Terrorists? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You got Let's the see, yeah, if we're going to go there, you're right. But it gets back to he spent intentional time pouring himself personally into these guys. Yeah. Um, those are relationships that I would love to have and they're hard to find anymore for multiple reasons. And maybe, just maybe, I need to stop for a minute. This is very convicting to think about. Thank you, Derek. Jesus called 12 men. Jesus knew that he was going to get stabbed in the back by one of them. Mm-hmm. That means we've got to put ourselves out there even though we know that somebody's going to stab us in the back. And I don't know if you have experienced that yet, but if you anybody who's in ministry for a length of time, especially if you're trying to be biblically true, faithful to God and faithful to His Word, and are genuinely putting yourself out there to pour yourself out, you're going to get stabbed in the back. Thankfully, so far I've only been stabbed in the front. I can tolerate the front stabs. You see it coming. You can kind of prepare yourself for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, but I don't think I've had any it, real backstabs. It will happen. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked to a pastor that's been at it for any length of time that hasn't experienced it. Um, and it's just the reality of, of life. Uh, some have been stabbed so many times that they've almost become numb to the world. Some that I've known of, I've not known personally, have even been pushed to the point of taking their own life. Yeah. What a sad testimony. I know men who have left the pastorate 
not because they didn't feel like God called them to the pastor, but because their heart couldn't take it anymore. They literally had run out of time, run out of effort, run out of themselves. Now, obviously, we could make some theological arguments that maybe they weren't drawing near to the Lord and all that, but well, I'm not going to go that far. Well, I even think what's so sad about that is when you think about it, being a pastor, you get to do what you want. Like, in terms of, I love studying the what Bible. What are you passionate about? I get to study the Bible. Not only that, but I have a purpose to study the Bible that I get to share it with people. I love caring for people. I love the people that... And, and it, it, it's actually kind of astounding when you think about how introverted I am. But Isn't that funny? I sincerely love everyone that God has entrusted to my care. Even when the people may not think you love them. Right. Um, Even, you know what? I'll, all right, here we go. I'll let level with you. Let, let me, me level with you again. Even when I don't want to love them. Even when people aren't very lovable. Well, you say it however you want, but... You know what I mean by that. But, but even in those situations, I am astounded that God gives me compassion towards them. Yes, Because it's one of those moments when I look back and I go... God, this isn't who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, um, really? Um, I, I, my life sentiment, you got a fly on your bottle. That's exciting. Yeah, it looks like it's, wow, you almost caught it with your fingers. That's disturbing. Kung Fu, the legend continues. <laughs> uh, but my life mission actually was inspired by my junior high band director when I started band. His life philosophy became mine. And this was long before I was a believer. His life philosophy was to make a difference. Nice and simple. I co-opted that early on, especially when I committed myself in my first vocation, which was as a music uh, music teacher, band director. And... That was long before I had recognized the call to salvation and the call to uh, ministry is I saw what my life was about was making a difference in people's lives. Even before I understood the depth of that, Mm -hmm. one could say that my mission in life, even before I really knew the Lord was setting me up to understand what pastoral ministry is. Right. And that has remained. Uh, it's just the focus of it and realizing that God, and this gets us all the way back around to our starting point, that God gave us not only a purpose, a mission, but it gave us the direction to go to fulfill that ministry, that mission that he's given us. And, it involves his word. Let's see. In fact, the Great Commission lists them off. Teaching them all things that I have commanded you. Baptizing them. All these things relate to, that's how you plant churches. That's how you do ministry in the local church. I remember years ago, I guess it was probably when I was on the State Missions Advisory Missionary Advisory Committee. And I knew nothing about church planting. And I was the last person that should have been elected to that committee. Other than I learned a lot personally, but I was not an effective member of that 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 body. But I learned so much about what 
missions is supposed to be, that I finally got to the point of going, and I started asking this question of people. In fact, I think I made my first church just a little uncomfortable with this. I asked the question, so after watching my first church organization meeting, I went back to the church and said, I got a question. Other than a piece of paper and a special meeting, what is what is should functionally be different between a church plant and an organized autonomous local church? Oh. What's the difference? Do we have a meeting and suddenly we're something different? And that even goes back to, let me throw a bone here. I I was convicted a few weeks ago. Anna sent me uh, a a picture of a page of it. She went to a a Bible conference uh, that was basically dealing with church history. Okay, And in one of the first pages, it had this statement that Jesus Christ planted the the first church in his earthly ministry. And she said she had never heard it before. I was like, how did how did I not convey that to you? This, that's been a core belief of mine that I have talked about on many occasions, and that just broke my heart because so many people today think the church began with the flip of a switch on the day of Pentecost, the Southern Baptist Confession, the Baptist Faith and Message, two thousand, I believe, actually makes that statement that the church began at the day of Pentecost. Really, I, I haven't noticed that, and which is. A distinctive. Um, I am not a landmarkist, but I I owe a lot. I am from the landmarkist tradition, right? In, in terms of my education, my time, and, and my discipleship, the churches I've been a part of, we believe Jesus planted the first church. And, but I'm, I'm getting back to just the bare mechanics. Jesus planted the first church by assembling the pieces together and teaching them and discipling them and preparing them to be the church. Right. That's the model for planting churches today. Now, if a guy goes into a community and begins that work and builds a building and does it, fine. But again, is the goal the building? Is the goal a gigantic... uh, number on a church role or is the goal a body of believers who are making disciples and seeking to then be part of the ongoing process of planting churches or even what is the problem of focusing on the wrong things when you if you sincerely go out and you evaluate what the Christian church has done in the past 20 years have we done a lot of reaching the unsaved Or are most church plants just made up of people that were already nominal Christians that got drawn into a particular church? Or got fed up with the church they had been part of. Yeah. Growth by attrition. That's right. I believe that happens. When we look at the statistics that that, that support this, this argument's already been made. It's not new. Are we truly focusing on the mission? Are we discipling people? I think it's great whenever you take a nominal Christian and you see spiritual maturity. I still rejoice in that. I love that. 
But the reality is there are still people out there that are not Christians at all that need to confess the truth. And, and, and it, we're running into a growing number of people that even in what we used to call the Bible Belt that have never actually heard the actual biblical gospel. They've heard, well, Jesus loves you as you are, come as you are, and just love him and all will be good. Where What happened to Jesus' proclamation to repent and believe the gospel? A false sense of security, and, and that's protecting people. And all of these issues, I, I think they actually relate in terms of what is our mission? Can you define what your mission is? Can you define it well? Our mission is to seek and to find the lost, to share the gospel with them, and to disciple them. As pastors, I believe our mission I believe a pastor's mission is to contend for first the salvation of himself and then the people that are under his care. And he does that by teaching soundly. Contending for the faith that was once handed down to us. Caring for them. He does that in a multitude of ways, but ultimately the mission of the pastor is to contend for the faith of the people that he cares for. Right. And to and, and part of that is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, Why does Scripture and Jesus in particular keep using the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep? Right. It's not because we're calling our church people dumb sheep. That's right. Because we are among the dumb sheep ourselves. Okay, that's not the case. But sheep need a guide and a protector. That's what a pastor's job is. The pastor leads the sheep to where they can eat, where they can be fed, and he keeps the wolves at bay with his staff, and he uses that same staff, I like to use the Word of God, to rein the sheep back in, to guide them, to direct them. And some folks don't like to hear this. Sometimes that shepherd has to whack the sheep over the head with that staff. Hey, if the sheep wander off, sometimes the shepherd has to go break their legs. Break their legs and sling them over their shoulder and carry them back. Right. Um and so that's one of the less pleasant jobs of being a pastor. Uh, and yet that's the analogy Jesus used for a reason. Um, and so ultimately that gets back to what you were saying a while ago about what the pastor does, for the, does especially in the context of, of doing for the local church. But again, we get stuck, and there's another case of mission drift. Hey, I enjoy several ancillary ministries. You and I have discussed it before. I'm passionate about disaster relief. I get a great deal of joy deploying into a the aftermath of a hurricane or a tornado, oftentimes with no air conditioning, battling snakes and bugs, running a chainsaw with a whole bunch of heavy protective gear on, sweating, having to be reminded to take frequent breaks and drink water, and toting wood and, and pulling stuff and unloading stuff or wading through mud to... And yet I'm passionate about it because, again, that theme of making a difference, I get to share the gospel with people and to people that are much more receptive than the typical neighborhood around our home churches. And yet something like that can be a mission drift for me because then I can wind up being, a, being about that doing, and there's nothing wrong with that doing, but I'm doing that to the neglect of my prime mission, which is my neighborhood and my community, 
working through and among this church. And take it even a step further. You were talking about the issue of vulnerability and transparency. And some of the reasons why that's neglected, I think, in pulpits today is because we live in a diplomatic world. Uh, we live in a world where if you want to maintain someone's respect, you know, you have to carry yourself in a particular way. And I know that generations that come after me are kind of destroying that for better or for worse. <laughs> well, you know, your generation gets a lot of the credit for kickstarting that problem. But anyway, I'm yeah, not blaming you. Listen, you get what I'm saying. We reined it in. Okay, that's all I'm saying. But you do understand that every generation blames the following generation. That's been true for thousands of years. But anyway, <laughs> them young whippersnappers are ruining everything. Uh, it's actually funny to look back at like how, how millennials started kind of started breaking down some of these boundaries and then like I look at Gen Alpha coming up you know after Gen Z and everything else and I go my goodness this <laughs> world is unhinged yeah and but, but my point is for better or worse these transparency things are getting broken down and what, what are we to do with that why do we avoid transparency ultimately isn't it because we don't trust God with our story? I, there's a little bit of a leap there, but I, I think given enough time, I could connect the dots. Ultimately, isn't the reason why we avoid sincerity in, in whatever form it is because we don't trust God with the circumstances? We don't trust God with the truth of our story. We don't trust God with all of these things. When we look in the biblical record, which this is the point, we look back, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, we find examples of people failing. Even Abraham, the <laughs> father of our faith, failed in big ways. Noah failed. Adam failed. There's no, not one person that hasn't failed. And when we look at them, it's not their failures that we see, but it's what God did through them. I think the real strength of the church is, is getting back to trusting God. But then you've got to have an awfully high view of God to be able to trust God. And as you like to say, Brother Michael, therein lies the rub. I've heard that before. Whenever... We don't realize how easy it is to denigrate our view of God. It happens when we're not looking at it. It happens when we're not thinking about it. And we think it hasn't changed. But when you are not constantly focused on just how, mag how, how glorious, how much majesty God has, when you are not constantly focused on that, it's easy to make Him just another friend. God is not just another friend. Uh, and he's not the Doobie Brothers version either, right? <laughs> I hope not. Jesus is just all right. <laughs> uh, no, he's far better than all right. Um, I picked up something last week at our Pastors and Layman's conference at our meeting. Dr. Atterbury really made an interesting point during the evangelism, Christ at the center of our evangelism part. And that was, it's almost as if evangelism 
has moved from training people and getting church members to share the gospel, their version of evangelism takes Jesus completely out and has evolved into, hey, come to, you ought to come to church. Right. And it's not that we mind people inviting people to church. Absolutely. Invite people to church. That's great. Please don't stop. Yeah, please don't stop inviting people to church. In fact, invite more people to church. But ultimately, it is going back to the responsibility to equip the saints. We are all called to share the gospel, the good news of we go to a great church with great music. No, that's not the gospel. It's calling people to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting ready to enter into the Thanksgiving Christmas season. Our choir here has been working on our Christmas production thing. We're going to do both here and then the following Sunday, we're going to do it at one of the area rehabilitation centers. Um, But Christ is at the very center of the music we're singing, the message we're portraying. Why? Because, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate Christmas. Right. We're not commanded. It's not a feast of tabernacles and and all that. It is a distinct that we have decided it's worthy to celebrate the physical advent of our Savior. And I think that's a pretty big deal. And, and I love it. I do too. I, when, we, when we keep it focused there, I get. I went through a period of time where I almost hated Christmas. Not because I hated what Christmas was biblically about. I hated what it had become. The commercialization of it had just about totally ruined it for me. I thank God for the reboot in my mind of a reminder of what Revelation 2, 1 through 7. What are we to focus on? Why do we celebrate? We celebrate because God in the flesh came to dwell among men to seek the lost and to die on their behalf. Mm-hmm. My goodness. If that doesn't drive us to our knees, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. And no wonder we have mission drift because we're focusing on the wrong things. If the glory and goodness and grace of God aren't sufficient to make you passionately want to pursue Him, you need to reboot your thoughts. And and this is, I don't know how long we, we've been talking. and I've One hour, one minute, and 45, 45 seconds. Okay. So is it, <laughs> is it wrap-up time? It's getting close to wrap-up time. Well, you know, I know we've been all over the place. I've, we've kind of attempted to define terms, but we've really kind of loosey-goosey looked at all the implications of right. mission drift. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing because the reality is this touches a lot. And and more of these conversations need to happen beyond Brother Derek and Brother Michael. These are the kind of dis- discussions that need to be happening on a regular basis in a lo- in the local churches. It needs to be happening right. in missions agencies and missions departments and committees. It needs to be happening across the board because ultimately our mission drifts when we lose sight of Christ. Our mission drifts when we start chasing after the world and worldly measures, as we've talked about in a previous podcast. Mission drift happens when anything causes us, as Peter, when he stepped out of the boat and was able to walk on the water, as long as he kept his eyes 
focused on Christ, that right. Christocentric perspective, he was walking on the water, blowing his own mind and everybody else's mind until he looked at the waves around him. In the local church, we have the same tendency to do that. In church planting, we have the same tendency to do that. We look at the woes of the world, and then we got to figure out how to do it. And so we take on critical race theory. We take on intersectionality. We start chasing DEI and all the other worldly ways of coping with the, the waves and the troubles of the world. No, put your eyes on Christ and the ways of the world will get taken care of on their own because we serve a God who can take care of it all. Right. Oh, my gosh. That is so important that we have a God that can take care of it. Do He's still really? on his throne. I don't care what's going on. And I don't care how jacked up we get. God is still on his throne. So, th- so this isn't just an issue of personal worship. It's not just an issue of doing things the way that the Bible says because we're regulative and the way that we, you know, th- that's not what this is a conversation about. It's a conversation about we would be more effective at what we're doing. And I know it looks foolish to some. In fact, by the way, the Bible says it looks foolish to some. In fact, the message we preach is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's right. But we could do more by simply being obedient. I, I'm and having these conversations. I, I really enjoyed this episode. I, you know, I, we did jump all over the place. We looked at a lot of different things, and the reality... The reality that's in the back of my mind is this is close to home. It is. And, and it ought to be close to home. Even if your church, even if your association of churches, whatever, even if we were doing things and towing the line and, 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 and doing things right, it still ought to be close to home. These are things that we ought to keep revisiting and keep looking at. That's why over in in, all in Scripture, we're commanded to keep looking back to, again, that faith that was handed down. How did Christ do it? How did the apostles do it? What did that local church look like? Because that needs to be our touchstone by which we measure, not worldly popularity. Jesus said we'd be hated for his namesake. So if, if it's the world's measure that we're using for success and the questions we answer... If it's the world's measure of of progress, then we're measuring by the wrong measure, and we need to have this conversation again. We need to get back to God. And, and what it means do you want? it means that oh, I had the words, and, and then they just they slipped away from me. I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. I, I was listening to what you were saying, and that's what I prompted just derailed it. it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it means that this is not an issue of, well, you're not expressing yourself the way that I want. Oh, this isn't an issue of, it's not an issue of the building. It's not an issue of the style of worship in church. It's not an issue of the, the color of the walls or whether walls exist at all. It's simply an issue of, are we motivated by the right things? Are, are we, are we, are we motivated to fulfill the mission that we've been given, or have we gotten confused? Part of having tradition handed down to us in a tradition that is two thousand years old 
is that there have been a lot of different approaches to, to the way that the church operates, to the way that missions are conducted. Lots. In all of that, uh, despite all of these different approaches, I, I think God has been glorified in, in a lot of them. And they're drastically different. I mean, you sometimes he's been glorified in spite. Right. <laughs> One argument can be made that after uh, the the Roman emperor at the time made the 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 church the legal religion of Rome and the Catholic the Catholic Church was established. I see a connection when I look at church history. You see the beginning of monasteries. Now we're Baptists. So this may be a little weird to discuss, but. Those were really the first mission societies that ever existed. And in those monasteries, I believe what we saw was the withdrawal of genuine Christians from nominal Christianity so that they could live their life. And, in their own little bubble. And, well, and there were some benefits from that. So those monasteries, of course, one of their major missions at the time was educating people. And, and so I mean, we're in... Third, fourth century, right? Mon- monastic stuff was a little later than that, but yeah. But but we're look, you know, we're we're trying to connect the dots, right. and, and so we're looking at how this progressed. That's not our mission missionary model today. We have a hospital at one time was one of the most respected hospitals in Northwest Arkansas, Mercy Hospital, the Sisters of Mercy. Right. Okay. I'm thankful for organizations like that, but is that the mission? Right. And we can wind up getting ourselves so wrapped up in all the other doing, just like that church at Ephesus in in Revelation 2, it's so easy to get caught up in the doing and doing good things that the world benefits from. And, you know, my own motto about... You know, making a difference, we can get so hung up in trying to make a difference that we forget about what difference we're trying to make. And the main difference we ought to be making is the one that Jesus portrayed in the Great Commission. Certainly. And my point in bringing up this older model of missions is, you know, that was a successful model for ministry for a long time. If you follow missions and the way that they had been conducted for the past 200 years, you know, you come to the Moravians, you come to modern-day mission societies like stuff that that uh, William Carey began – that's a lot of ground to cover, but it's okay that these are different expressions because the issue is not how do we express ourselves. The issue is, is our eye on the prize or not? Do we have a laser-like focus on the mission? Do we have systems in place where we are evaluating whether that's truly what we're working towards? Because the goal is not how many children can we educate. The goal is not how many people are in Sunday school. The goal is not how long we can preach. Actually, I'm, I'm interested. How long could I preach? Because <laughs> I, I think I've always had to stop myself. So, um, but, but, but none of that's the goal. The, the goal is, very simply, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. In these two things, the whole of the law is the whole contained. Of the law. Right. And how do you do that? 
Well, let me share with you how you do that. Here's a Bible, and let's start. And let's not just educate, because there's a difference between type education and teaching and discipleship. There's a difference. Um, discipleship implies teaching. Discipleship implies modeling. Discipleship implies, back what I said, our pastor roles are to pour ourselves into others as Jesus poured himself into his immediate followers. Um, it's a tough thing. But I also want you just, you almost went where I was about to go with this to close it out. <laughs> All of this still points back to the most fundamental and important reality. As I just completed Romans 8 recently, that entire chapter deals with there being no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. We can have faith that God works all things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Oh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced that neither height, depth, trials, troubles, stresses, strains, and all the other things that I put in my own version of that, that text can separate us from the love of God, what? In Christ Jesus. The question to my listener and Derek's listener right now, are you truly in Christ Jesus? You're not a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're not in Christ Jesus. So, my favorite verse, this has become the one that I use when I'm on disaster relief. I use it in conversations. I use it as a verse that I carve into tree stumps. Acts 4.12 While this world seeks after salvation and whatever feels good, while some supposed great evangelists have stated this verse, they've also stated things like, well, I believe that the Buddhist and the Muslim, if they are sincere in their faith, I believe that they still could go to heaven. No, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus. If you have not absolutely trusted in Jesus Christ alone, the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, who lived without sin and yet took the wrath that was due me for my sins, that substitute in my place, who was raised from the grave, who now is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. If you've never truly trusted in Him, you know, we often have even used the term, I think John MacArthur gets a lot of flack for this because they call it Lordship Salvation. That's a whole other episode. But if Christ is not your acknowledged Lord, if you have not humbled yourself before him because of the knowledge that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, that he did die in your place, then I would implore you before you even try to consider anything else, before you even attempt to be part of a church mission or a church planting mission, right now, humble yourself Turn from your sins and trust alone in Jesus Christ. The only name 
given under heaven to man where we might, must be saved. Derek, you have anything else to close us out? I'll just say amen. Amen. It's been a pleasure. This has been uh, to the to the concrete sequentials out there. You're probably pulling your hair completely out now because of our, our very very much uh, somewhat rambling talk. But I hope that you've gotten something from this. I hope that it's been helpful. If nothing else, maybe it'll stimulate conversations because that's what we really need to avoid mission drift and to really refocus back on what the mission for believers, for the church, for entities, including church planting groups and associations of churches. If we don't get back to the main thing, that is Christ. And, and his purpose. Did I stimulate a talk? You did. I'll say one thing. <laughs> In this discussion, please understand I do not think I have all the answers. I think that I have mission drift as much as anyone else. Yes. And the reason for this conversation is because I know how important it is because I see it in my own life. That, that's the last thing I want to say. That's why I value our friendship. Right. Because you can pick up the phone and you can text me, call me. I can pick up the phone and text or call you. Uh, and we can help each other to avoid extremes of mission drift. Sometimes it's hard to differentiate between what is uh, constructive venture and mission drift. But anyway, again, thank you for tuning in to the Lonely Pastors podcast. This again is Brother Michael Battenfield. And Brother Derek Brewer. And we will see you next time. Thank you.